Yo, what's good, people? We're back. NMMU episode 34. Really going crazy. Try to be consistent this July. Damn, we're already through July. It's August. It's the first. Damn. Thank you for listening. Thank you if you've shared with anyone. I must admit, I looked at the analytics. We're looking good. There's an actual fan base. There are actually people that are listening. And that's crazy. Um, Don't feel shy. Definitely. (laughs) Definitely reach out. I'd love to know. You know, I'd definitely love to know who's listening. Um, And also just, you know, try and respond. You know, or try and add things into the show that are, you know, sort of in the direction of what you're enjoying. So wherever you are, text me. I got Twitter, I got Instagram. I'm sure there's an email somewhere there. Anyway, this weekly is going to be a short one. I just got out of the gym. It's been a crazy, like, three weeks, but we've been working hard. The boys, we've been putting work in at the bar. Um, Had some really good times there this month. Um, So, yeah, I just got out the gym. Got some tattoos this weekend, you know, getting ready, it's getting warmer, excited for summer. But obviously, like, the weather is, like, a bit crazy, you know, I must admit. Like, for me, it's been cold. For others, they felt like, oh, it hasn't been such a cold winter. But, you know, judging by the climate crisis we're going through in the world right now, um, let's see how hot it gets this summer. In today's weekly, so today's episode pretty much is about practicing your opinion. You know, I've been thinking about it quite a bit and what that means to me to practice your opinion. Um, And also just to have the kind of energy where, you know, you're not offended or even opposed to changing your mind. You know, I think when the information changes, I change my mind. So... I think in what we're going to go through today, as far as what I've been listening to, you know, that's what really stuck out for me, practicing your opinion, you know, being able to sometimes speak, sometimes listen, um, and not just giving, you know, the first opinion that comes to mind. And I always look at it like a good career, you know, in any discipline is practicing your opinion. Because when you start, you know, like seasoned veterans can sort of point out, you know, your shortcomings. But as you get into it, almost like a language, you know, you're just better at expressing yourself in that said, you know, discipline. So practicing your opinion has been something that, like, I've definitely benefited from, you know, reading up on different things, making sure I have enough information to have an opinion and also to know that, you know, um, in the end, you know, I don't have every single piece of information but at least you know I've done the diligence of not just you know spitting out the first thing that comes to mind so on today's weekly practicing your opinion there's a new show called the rehearsal with Nathan Fielder I'm gonna play the audio from the trailer and I'm just gonna give you like sort of my you know first take on listening to it I'm not listening to it rather watching it it's insane you know And, you know, he sets the premise, which I'll also get into. So the rehearsal by Nathan Fielder. Um, WWE, Vince McMahon retires. That's what we're also going to go through. And that's a story from The Guardian. 
Um, another one is Euro 2022 and the future of women's football. I mean, coming off of the high of um, Banyana Banyana winning the Women's African Cup. So it's like AFCON, but the women's side. Um, and obviously the country in a high. And it's just interesting to just listen to where that sport is or even where just women's sport is at the moment. Um, Pivot, um, they interviewed this lady whose dad um, is known to be one of the most prolific sperm donors of all time. And just listening to her speak about her experience and how she found her siblings and just, you know, a million children have been born in America through... Um, sperm donation or like sperm banks, basically. So that's a lot of people. So it was just interesting to hear their stories, you know, um, and the stories of the people that wanted to have children. And then obviously monkeypox, you know, let's not stigmatize people, but, you know, it's um, more information is coming out and it seems to have gone from something that's very simple to like a crisis now. Um and then the last is um, a little bit from London, Liz Truss. I'm calling this Trust Me Daddy. <laughs> I'm just interested in uh, politics in general. So um, this is just about who will be the next prime minister. And just like, you know, the details of both their stories and how they're going about campaigning. I thought that was interesting for me to share. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. You could have used your time in any way. I hope this will be well worth it. Um, I think you'll love it. Okay, let's run it up. I've been told my personality can make people uncomfortable. Hey, how to make love all night. Oh, well, you know. I think we're going <laughs> to get along pretty well. <laughs> but I've learned that if you plan for every variable, a happy outcome doesn't have to be left to chance. This conversation's going pretty well. Yes. So that's no accident. Everything that's happened today, <laughs> I've rehearsed it. Hey, hi, Nathan. Dozens of times. In a replica of your home. This is what we can do for you. You and you. You know, just off the top of my head, I would say, sure, let's go with it. This is going to be fun. It will be. My goal is for your rehearsal to reflect reality. The government has Sasquatch liaisons. I love you, Daddy. With this show, if your performance isn't accurate, you could ruin someone's life. This is all sort of absurd. Keep them crying, don't let up. Okay. I've got to tell you something. I don't want to talk to you again. Do you find it's been healthy for you here? Mm. Are you sure you want to do this? I don't really like lying to people. You're a liar. Yeah, neither do I. You're a Willy Wonka and I'm Charlie Bucket. I'm the bad guy in Well, I'm... but he's a dream maker. Okay. And you're doing, you're making some dreams happen but for me. But kids died in the factory? Well, they supposedly died. I... I'll, I'll read the book again just to, to, to look into it. Yeah. I promise you, the show is so good. It starts out super peculiar, you know? And, and I mean, if you've watched any of the Nathan For You things, um, those episodes he did online, 
um, where he made like fake Starbucks. So his whole thing was to help small businesses. But like, there's something so comical about this guy. <laughs> um, so anyway, the rehearsal is really, really, really good. Episode one is, I'll give you an example of what it's like. So episode one is about this gentleman who has been lying to his friends. So he's quiz night friends. And that's like such a, you know, current thing in my life. I have friends who do quiz nights. I have friends who host quiz nights, etc. So anyway, he's been lying to his friend group and more specifically one lady about how he had a master's degree. And so Nathan is going to help him rehearse basically telling her or coming clean. So they make a replica of the guy's house. They make a replica of a bar that um, they frequent. And then they, they go into those places and practice. They get actors. It's like the most elaborate thing ever, but only HBO has the kind of history to even take on a show like this. Um, he produced a show or is executive producer on a show called How To With John Wilson. Another peculiar smash hit of a show. Um, so yeah, check it out. It's really good. And I think it's like, it's something so relatable about people struggling, you know, to do things in their life and having to maybe practice. <laughs> and maybe that being the reason, you know. Um, I'm, as far as episode three, it's not all good. It's not all perfect. But just the attempt, you know, just to watch this attempt is interesting. So the rehearsal, still the weekly. Let's run it out. Susie, to understand what a huge moment this is for women's football, we need to look back a little bit at its history. Of course, women have been playing football for a long, long time, but it doesn't seem like they've always been welcome in the professional game. The history of women's football is as old as the history of men's football, essentially. You reach a point in the early 1900s where you've got the more formalistic version emerging and then you've got a huge, huge boom of the game during the First World War and in the interwar years as the men who go off to fight in the war vacate the sort of workplaces and factories and women fill those spots. And that was a real attitude change. Women's football exploded uh, in the absence of men's football during that time. And in 1920, 53,000 people attended Dick Kerr Ladies v St Helens at Everton's Goodison Park. Uh, I think there was another 16,000, it's rumoured, that that were outside and couldn't get tickets to get in as well. So a huge, huge audience. We played a match at Everton against St Helens ladies in front of 53,000 spectators. Gate receipts, £3,115. And then the following year, literally the following year in 1921, the FA banned women's football from all football grounds that had any affiliation to them so they were basically forced from these huge stadiums into parks and rugby league grounds that were significantly smaller than that and things like that and that essentially killed the game. So it was flourishing, people wanted to go and see it, women wanted to play it. Why did the Football Association ban it? The FA did not like that. They didn't have control um, and they didn't like that the huge swathes of teams of women were raising the equivalent of to millions of pounds in today's money for, for charities and political causes that they weren't supportive of and had no control over. So it came down to money. It wasn't just a case of, of thinking, oh, dainty ladies shouldn't be playing this game. It was totally a bit of both. That first element of saying that the game is unsuitable for women to play, of 
putting out a load of doctors who would say that, oh, you know, a woman's womb would fall out if they played football. Wow. It, you know, it's a completely inappropriate thing for a women's physique to be doing. Basically that, yeah, women are incapable of playing football and their bodies can't handle it. When did the FA start to shift its stance? So in the late 60s, the FA began to shift its stance on uh, women's football and whether it should be allowed to be played or not. The men who coach these girls risk suspension from their own clubs if the FA hears about them dallying with ladies' football teams. The Cunard team, who were tearfully toppled today, blamed their loss of form on the absence of their coach. There was a lot of pressure coming from UEFA at the time and that was very much with a view to... This bringing it to is such a good story, especially, you know, on the backdrop of Banyana Banyana winning WAFCON, so that's Women's African Cup of Nations 2022. Um, and then obviously the Euro Women's Final as well, having, you know, record sort of um, viewership. I just, you know, it was for me, what was interesting about this is listening to the history of women's football. And I guess, you know, if we're going with the theme today of practicing your opinion, you know, listening to how they described, you know, how women were treated. Doctors, they found physicians to say things like your womb will fall out if you try and play. I can just imagine different ways women were ostracized in different sports, you know, for reasons that don't make sense. And even the conversation about whether, you know, there's commercial viability, if you put them on the main stage, anything, you know, after a while, after, let's say, however long football's been around, will also, you know, um, show benefits to the person that's putting support behind. So, you know, I hope... You know, as things change, you know, this is the same conversation in um, women's football, women's rugby, women's basketball, you know, around how people are getting paid, sponsorship deals. You know, for the most part, for women, it still feels like the beginnings of, you know, any sport in the beginning where people had two jobs even. A lot of people can't just be, you know, a football player, for example, Sometimes they have to do things like be a PE teacher. Um, that's uh, physical education. It's just like sports. Um, so, yeah, you know, interesting to, to listen to it from the point of view of England and the FA and obviously, you know, the Premier League and all those famous teams and just the growth, you know, and where it's going really for women. And I think it's a positive outlook. And I hope stories like this help to carve your or mold your opinion around women's sports or even just women's physical activities and, you know, their inclusion. Um, yeah, I'm really enjoying today's um, NMMU episode. <laughs> Sorry, I got lost there. I'm really enjoying today's weekly. Practice your opinion. We keep going. Boom. To the final two, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Tell me a little bit about them as people. What do they seem to stand for and what are their backgrounds? Well, it's interesting because they're quite different in some ways and also very similar in others. So Rishi Sunak comes from quite a well-to-do background. He did this very slick leadership video where he said, let me tell you a story. 
And he talked about his immigrant grandmother who came here with almost nothing. Who boarded a plane armed with hope for a better life and the love of her family. However, by the time little Rishi arrives, his mum and dad are doing quite well. His mum's a pharmacist, his dad's a GP in Southampton. They are clearly earning enough to send him to fancy public school called Winchester. I think he had a partial scholarship, but even so, not cheap. And off he goes then to Oxford University. And he takes the sort of financial, the city route. So even at university, he was apparently part of the, not the beer drinkers club or the hockey club, but the investment club, where all the cool kids hang out no doubt what were the parties uh, <laughs> like in the investment club i can't imagine i mix and match and then i go to see kids from an inner city state school and tell them you know to apply to oxford and talk to them about people like me and then i shock them at the end of chatting to them for half an hour and tell them i was at winchester and you know my best friends is from eton or whatever you know and and then they're like oh okay so off he then goes to the city he works for goldman sachs he goes across to stanford on the west coast of the united states to get an mba which is the business degree that lots of city type characters do and also we should say meets his fabulously wealthy wife very fortunately for him while he's over there and comes back is independently then quite wealthy decides to go into politics and he's a sort of late joiner in a sense because he only stands as an MP in 2015 in the Yorkshire seat of Richmond, nice leafy bit of Yorkshire. Madam Deputy Speaker, thank you for allowing me to make my first contribution to this house. So he's only been an MP for seven years and now he's this close to being leader. He's had a, a quite a meteoric rise. He was catapulted quite quickly into ministerial roles and then again quickly into the cabinet because he came out and supported Boris Johnson at an early stage in the 2019 leadership campaign and quite a few people who did that were rewarded with seats around the top table. Rishi Sunak was one of those. He was Chancellor from 2020 to earlier this year, a couple of weeks ago, when he resigned, helping to precipitate Boris Johnson's departure and here he is now running for the leadership. And Liz Truss, what's her story? Liz Truss, you could say, comes from a different background. So she has certainly stressed the fact that she went to a comprehensive school. Brackets, so did the vast majority of the population. But anyway, maybe in conservative circles, this sort of marks you out as an interesting character. But came from a sort of middle class home. And then we should say goes to Oxford University, does PPE, exactly the same degree as Rishi Sunak has done. So in a sense, they've taken contrasting paths and in a sense, there's quite a familiar route there. Interesting thing about Truss is that she was not a Conservative from an early age, so she was a Liberal Democrat. Speaker is Elizabeth Truss from Oxford West and Abingdon. And There's this footage of her as a young teenage Liberal Democrat standing on the stage at Liberal Democrat conference. She'd also campaigned against the monarchy. We do not believe that people should be born to rule or that they should put up and shut up about decisions that affect their everyday lives. Do you, conference, believe that? Do you? She talks about the fact that at some point she realised that there were sort of low expectations of people and she blamed that on the left and so she's had this sort of journey to the right and now is this strong advocate of freedom, she would say. She's been in Parliament a bit longer than Rishi Sunak since 2010. She's also done very senior jobs and, of course, for a year or so has been Foreign Secretary and has used that role very well. You know, we've seen lots of glorious photo ops in which she looks a little bit like Margaret Thatcher in various sort of poses. And it was pretty clear for a long time that she was someone who was going to want to stand for the leadership. We should say as well, in contrasting the pair of them, that Sunak was a Brexit supporter. Liz Truss campaigned very vehemently for Remain, although now, of course, sets herself up as a very strong Brexiter.
really good story that I think you should check out. Um, why does this matter? So part part of you know practicing our opinion is also you know sort of looking at geopolitical sort of understanding or even socioeconomic understanding. That's just a mix between like you know how we live and the money that drives it. You know the economics basically. So you know looking at a first world country like the UK or Britain rather or England. <laughs> um, so it's interesting to look at the politics that go into choosing a new leader, you know, um, because they, they, for them, this is quite a, you know, how would I even say it? It's like a, a thing of pride, you know, to know that the person that represents their country is a moral person, is a person that speaks for the people, is a person that has the people's best interests. So even starting at the point of their history, you know, and, them having to go to certain kind of schools and, you know, just the trajectory that gets you into politics. Um, and obviously, since the ousting of Boris Johnson, I was just interested to see who the next leader would be, the prime minister, and the person would be essentially seeing in the news um, in the coming years, or at least until the next election, because this is obviously within a party. So this isn't like national elections. This is more like replacing a candidate. Um, yeah, so Liz Truss and uh, Richie Sunak. It's just funny to listen to the stories, you know. the What does the rollout look like now for politics? What, what schools do you have to go to? What do you have to represent? You know, for example, they speak about Liz Truss studying PPE, which is politics, philosophy, and economics. Um, and I think that's like... The course, that's like the entry level. I know some guys at uni that study that as well. They work in government structures, etc. So yeah, just interesting to listen to the back and forth about why this one or why that one or, you know, this guy has a lot of money. She's for the people. Is he really a representative? Will he really change this and that? And I guess also just to look at, you know, even in your own, you know, looking at South Africa and the next version of, elections that are coming i think it's 2024 obviously the big whale ANC, and then the three other parties will obviously not obviously but looks to go into a coalition just so that there's more control or less control in the power of the the mammoth um so yeah just using that lens to sort of you know think about elections that are on the way here and again usually we take the lead from you know, our first world counterparts. So you know, they say when America sneezes, we all get flu. So let's see how this election goes and let's see, you know, the face or the form of the elections that will happen in South Africa and uh, who will be the personalities that are put forward, what will be the the slogans, you know, what are the campaign lines going to be, all exciting. It's still here, practicing your opinion in a minute. Krista Bilton is the author of this amazing book called Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings, a memoir of her unconventional childhood and her revelation that her father was a prolific sperm donor. Um, Krista, this book is better than I thought. You told me this story once when I was at your house. And I, you know, I have kids who we use sperm boners for my kids, uh, all of them, all four of them. And I just was sort of blown away by the stuff you found. So 
so let's start with your mom, uh, who I also met, who was also a character, let me just say, if I, as I recall. Um, talk a little bit about um, about your mom. She was a, an out lesbian in the 1980s. She's still sort of uh, running around. Your mom has a lot, got a lot of energy and stuff. Um, talk a little bit about that and like what how this set up to get to have you being born and these other people also by other parents. Yeah. Yeah. So my mother, um, as you mentioned, she was a lesbian, mm -hmm. wanted to have kids. Um, she grew up in the 50s and 60s at a time when, you know, when she sort of first, um, when she first realized that she had feelings for women, it was so not a part of society at that time. And it was mm -hmm. so hidden that she actually thought she was the only lesbian in the world. She didn't yes. even know there was the word lesbian. Mm -hmm. Um, so just to contextualize where she was coming from. And when mm -hmm. she decided in her 30s that she wanted to have children, she didn't know a single gay person who had had a family or had mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. um, so just to sort of set the the scene. So she mm -hmm. then went, she really, really wanted kids. And mm -hmm. she, but she, you know, sperm banks were just starting to crop up at that time. And so she went on a manhunt to find <laughs> a sperm donor. <laughs> and my dad walked into a hair salon and she looked at him and he was this physically gorgeous man. And she just mm -hmm. had this feeling that this was the one. So mm -hmm. she she asked him out to lunch and offered him $2,000 to uh, give his sperm to her. And, mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of the journey with my dad. And I mm -hmm. call him my dad, not a sperm donor, because she felt then a lot of shame not giving us this traditional family. So she then proceeded to, after I was born, um, financially support him so that he would play a role in our lives. Right. And so he promised that, not to donate to anyone else, correct? Yes. And she mm -hmm. she made him make this promise that he would never donate to anyone else. And so he he made that promise and then secretly started donating as his main profession for, mm -hmm. for almost a decade after that. So first off, I don't think this is that unusual. I meet a lot of people that I offer money for sex in exchange for. I don't. <laughs> Hello, Krista. Welcome. Welcome to Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast. So first off. We'll have to talk about that later. I'm, I'm yeah. so curious. Just, uh, it's, pre it's pretty straight. It's, it's been happening throughout history. Anyways. All um, right. Ask a question, Scott. My first observation is your, your your mother sounds like a remarkable woman. And I always have just a ton of respect for people who were outwardly gay before it was cool or acceptable. It sounds like your mother was a real, for lack of a better term, courageous woman who was just, you know, I am here. Yes, she. my mother was incredible. She, she lived this fabulous out there life. She, mm -hmm. you know, as I grew up, she she would come out of the closet in big ways. She was on talk shows talking about our family. And then that led to her losing a job. She would go back in the closet. So she had this in and out relationship with that. But she was she was an incredible and fascinating woman in ways beyond this story. I mean, she pioneered many new age religions that some think of as cults. She was a leader in several multi-level marketing companies that some might call pyramid schemes. So Growing up, we we lived this really, you know, um, big life. Sometimes we were living in multi-million dollar mansions one minute, on the verge of homelessness the next. Um, mm -hmm. So, the book is really a love letter to my mother because mm -hmm. she's so but, something else. So, but take us back to Krista in the eighth grade, like any thirteen. This girl. story is so good. It's in an old episode of Pivot. Well, the, the episode is titled Microsoft and Netflix are BFFs. 
Delaware Showdown and Sperm Donors, but the lady's name is Krista Bilton, and the book is called Normal Family. What is a normal family? I even like the title because, you know, that's really what got me interested. I was sitting here listening and just thinking, you know, those are the kinds of arrangements that you have to get into if you're going to go th- the IVF route, for example, or a sperm bank, for example, or even storing eggs, you know, and I haven't had a lot of information into this world. So this was like me just kind of, you know, listening intently just so that I could start to create a base for understanding this. I'm in my 30s. They're speaking about um, her mother making the decision uh, to, you know, start this journey with a gentleman that she met, a good-looking gentleman that she met. Um, obviously, in the interview, they go into other details. Apparently, he donated something like, he donated sperm every every week for the next 10 years after making that promise to the mom about, you know, not ever going back. Um, yeah, so just a great story, a great little insert there. And the insert is a uh, friend of the show, so they always play the friends jingle. Yeah, so it's Normal Family, Krista Bilton, that's Pivot, Cara Swisher, and Scott Galloway. And in a fu- and, and Scott shares a really funny story about how he had to also donate to a sperm bank when he was at UCLA to pay for fees. Um, yeah, just a really, yeah, you know, caught my ear and I was just like, wow. But here we go, practicing our opinion, creating a base for something that we don't know or had an opinion on, and actually getting facts. Run it up. (laughs) Abe, who is Vince McMahon? Vince McMahon is the longtime owner and the overlord of World Wrestling Entertainment, or what was once known as that, now it's just WWE. You and God versus me, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, and the product of my semen, my son, Shane. The short version is he's the guy who runs more wrestling and has run more wrestling in America than anyone else. I've got an insatiable appetite for life, and I want more, more, more. WWE is a massive corporation. It's a billion-dollar corporation that is not just about wrestling. It's a multimedia empire. They create content for a wide array of mediums and audiences. Welcome to McMahon's Million Dollar Mania. Vince McMahon is a very powerful man, and that's often underestimated because wrestling isn't taken seriously. When did Vince McMahon become the chairman and CEO of WWE? You know, the titles sort of change somewhat arbitrarily, but it's almost like the the titles don't matter nearly as much as the fact that just everyone knows Vince is in control. And he has been since 82, 83, when he started taking over from his father. Specifically, the thing he spends his most time on is creative, the, the actual stuff that gets performed. Now, a lot of CEOs or majority shareholders, whatever, would sort of stay out of the specifics. Bob Chapek at Disney doesn't get to in the weeds with approving every single line in every single Marvel movie script. But that's what Vince does with his own product. The hype leading up to the match is very carefully choreographed. 
Vince McMahon literally looks upon that hype the same way the producer of Dynasty or Dallas looks at his uh, screenplay. He retains an enormous amount of micromanaged control over what goes on in his programming. He's the promoter. That's the term from wrestling, is promoter, the person who owns the promotion, the, the organization where the wrestling happens. And that's unambiguously been Vince since the early 80s. In the wrestling business, it's uh, two or more individuals going out to the ring, wrestling, uh, having a, a little bit of applause or what have you from the audience, and it's time to go home until the next match. That's not really what we do. We're in the sports entertainment business, and there is a huge philosophical difference. I wonder if this was a succession-type situation. Was it always guaranteed that, like, this was going to be the family business? Well, it was not guaranteed that Vince was going to inherit the family business for sure, because he didn't. He had to buy it from his father. My dad was talking about selling out, and that frightened me. So I knew there was just some way I had to get my hands on this company. He did a series of what are called balloon payments over the course of four quarters between 82 and 83, June 82 to June 83. He had to pay about a million dollars to his father and his father's co-owners of what was then the Capital Wrestling Corporation. Vince Sr. had a lot of difficulties with Vince Jr., for lack of a better term. They had a lot of differences, both in personality and business approach, and Vince always says, I knew my dad wouldn't have really sold me the business had he known what I was going to do. Aha! What was he going to do? What was the big change? Vince's plan, and he executed it, was to take over wrestling. Vince McMahon, working with his wife Linda, begins building... You have to, have to listen to this. It's from Today Explain. This is Vox. Funny enough, before the story came out, or we found out that he'd retired by force, obviously because of the sexual um, harassment or charges that, that have been alleged, A, and B, also for the news that came out that over the past however many years, 20 years, he's paid something like $15 million in settlements in, you know, sexual assault or harassment or any, any cases that pertain to that sort of thing. So the other day, there's a new documentary series, I don't know what network it's with, that I've been watching, and they go through all the different WWE stars, and it'll be like an hour-long episode. And the one I watched was Stone Cold, obviously, what? Stone Cold Steve Austin. And there's no The Rock episode yet, so I'm waiting for that one. But Stone Cold and The Rock story are connected. Um, but how is Vince McMahon connected? So he's the creative director. He's the one who basically chooses the act, the name, the gimmick, the music, or rather is involved in, you know, creating that persona. Um, and obviously it's not real because it's entertainment. You know, the modern day version of a Vince McMahon. I know Vince McMahon is still alive in his 70s, Jim Bunny. The modern day version of a Vince McMahon is Dana White with the UFC. So you kind of get the picture. You know, they, they always ask Dana, Dana, what do, you, uh, what do you think about this person versus this person? It's in the same capacity of entertaining, but also there's a sports aspect to it. So yeah, Vince McMahon retires after all these years. Interesting to know he bought it from his father who didn't even want him to have it. I'm in no way here to highlight the bad parts of the story, but I think in general, 
listen to the whole story. And I mean, wrestling was such a big part of our lives, at least in my friend group and, you know, just like peer groups um, that I found in uni and even when my first job, for example. And I think in South Africa in general, because the WWE came here, wrestling's pretty big. Um, yeah, so there's my, you know, my opinion even on wrestling, this fake thing. And after you watch the documentary, you start to have an appreciation for these people and their journeys. Stone Cold Steve Austin is definitely one of the hardest workers, um, you know, and, and that sacrifice showed in his life. But yeah, you know, um, here's something else to add to an opinion you already have, maybe about wrestling. And sp listening to the story of the man that made it all happen and the things that maybe he had to do or rather, the things he could have avoided. Ladies and gentlemen, one more story, and then we're out of here. Thank you for listening so far. This was a good one. I really enjoyed this one. Cases of monkeypox are spiking here in the U.S. And the United States now leads the world in the number of confirmed cases with more than 4,900 in 46 states and the District of Columbia. Today. We have almost 5,000 cases of monkeypox in this country, and pretty much every expert I talk to says that's probably a huge underestimate. The monkeypox virus has infected more than 20,000 people in 75 countries. I mean, this virus has just really gotten around much more quickly and much more than anyone had expected. So much so that... Tonight, the World Health Organization sounding the alarm on the rapid spread of monkeypox. The global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. The World Health Organization declared that this is now a public health emergency of international concern. That's not a criteria they use lightly. They've only done it seven times since they first coined it. Oh, wow. So I think we should expect to see these numbers go up pretty steeply over the next few weeks. How bad can this get? And, and is there a possibility that we can get rid of monkeypox or do you think it's here to stay now? Okay, so it sounds like monkeypox really is a crisis in the United States right now. It's a crisis, but let me put it into context. It's not a crisis like COVID was. It's not killing people. It's not going to be of pandemic proportions where, you know, everybody you know will have had it. And it looks like it will be, at least for the near future, contained to one community, men who have sex with men. But for that community, and probably for some more people around them, this will not be a simple thing. I mean, it is excruciatingly painful, and it will be something to contend with. So, Apoorva, how did we end up in this situation? I mean, given how containable monkeypox seemed just a few weeks ago, and given all the tools that the U.S. had at its disposal, I mean, as you told us before, there was a vaccine, right? There were drugs. How did we get here? I think how we got here tells us a lot about how this country operates for public health. So on every one of those things you mentioned, testing, vaccines, drugs, there were a lot of things that went wrong. So let's start with testing. So testing is really important, right? It's how we know how widespread something is and how we identify patients and get them the help they need. Normally, when you go to the doctor for a test, the doctor can just order it up and tell you to go to a commercial lab like LabCorp or Quest. And that's an easy process, and it's how our medical system works. What happened with monkeypox is that 
the CDC had distributed the test to public health labs, which are a completely separate sort of network. And every time a doctor wanted to order a test, they had to call up the state epidemiologist, get an epidemiologist to sign off, and then get this test. And that whole process just took hours. There was so much paperwork and bureaucracy involved that most doctors just didn't have the time or wherewithal to do it. So instead of being able to call up the Questor LabCorp and test the patient, the doctor has to do all this paperwork and spend all this time getting to a special public health lab and really not knowing the answer, it sounds like, for days? Exactly. I mean, in some cases with some patients I talked to, it took up to two weeks to get a test result. Now, that is better now because the uh, Department of Health and Human Services did sign contracts with five different companies to make the tests more available. But my understanding from talking to doctors is that there is still a delay. It's still taking a few to several days for people to get their results back. Hmm. There's another thing that complicates how easily we can find people, and that's that monkeypox is looking a bit different than doctors and scientists had expected it to. When it was showing up in Africa, you know, there were certain symptoms that people associated with it, that everybody has fever and body aches. And then you would get this rash that was on your face and then your palms and hands. And it was supposed to be this entire progression. Except now, a lot of the men who are showing up at clinics don't have fever. Hmm. They all have some kind of rash at some point and lesions, but maybe just a few lesions and maybe only in the genital area. And some of them are showing up with excruciating pain before lesions even show up. And what's happening is that because that doesn't match what people have thought about monkeypox, doctors are sometimes turning patients away. I mean, I've talked to a couple of men who went to doctors early on in their illness and didn't yet have lesions but had a lot of pain and were told, nope, you have something else and maybe you have syphilis or maybe you have hemorrhoids or this or that. And these men have had to go to great lengths to get themselves tested. So they actually have monkeypox but are being sent away because they don't have symptoms that line up precisely with the CDC definition. Exactly. So from the start, it sounds like there were issues with testing, which kind of sounds familiar when I'm thinking about COVID. Testing was a really big problem in the beginning. Yeah. And the other thing that's happening, which also happened early in COVID, is that the CDC really doesn't have a good handle on how many cases there are. I mean, if you sort of compare what the CDC says for a particular state. To what so that's a good primer on monkeypox and what's going on, the spread, even just to look at possible issues that we could encounter if it does start to spread, let's say, in the developing world. Um, <laughs> why I wanted to do this specific story is just, you know, remember when remember i was like remember when aids came out remember when hiv or aids came out it felt like a disease from africa in the early 80s and 90s in america um they also associated to being gay for example so you know we have and those are just two examples you know we have a history of stigmatizing the wrong group as opposed to going after the issue and this is probably another example um i also like just like that we've been um, removed or rather the severity of our involvement as Africans has been put to sort of the third or fourth tier and now it's just an issue that needs to be sorted out so that's why I was listening to that and obviously I'd listened to the story previously that came out I think it was on the 6th of June that they mentioned 
on monkeypox. So I'm also just tracking it. You know, um, we have the benefit of being able to in real time, just like COVID. Um, and yeah, just, you know, being aware of the dangers. My dad always says, um, you should drive with the radio on with the news playing so that you're aware of what's going on in your community. Um, yeah, man. So that's the last of it. Thank you for listening to the weekly this week. It's been a pleasure hosting you. Um, it's been a pleasure going through all of this stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Send any questions that you have um, into email, comments, wherever. Wherever is easiest for you. And I'll definitely try and respond next time. This has been really fun to do. And the theme song is called No One. And the band's called Quiet Men. Till next week. <laughs>